0: Last week, I uh, changed about 20 light bulbs around the church. It's not in my job description, and I didn't mind doing it. I see some of you looking kind of sheepish, like, really, the pastor had to change light bulbs? It was all right. I, I, I was looking for a distraction, so it was a planned distraction. And the reason I did it is because I just noticed a few lights that were out, but it was funny. There's one hallway in the church there are literally six light bulbs in that hallway. Five of them were burned out. One was, and I think it was that way for months. And, and all of that, I just thought it's interesting because I was speaking on enlightenment this morning, and I, and I was all about pushing back the darkness. So, but, I, but it also made me realize how the dark, darkness just can gradually creep in, one bulb after another going out, and we, and we just live with it. We don't even notice it. Like we're living, it's like we're living in the shadows, and we don't even realize it. So hopefully this morning, maybe this message, my hope, my prayer is that it will enlighten us maybe to shed some more light on things that need to be uh, light, that light needs to be shed on. So let me just pray briefly for us as we begin. God, we uh, come before you this morning as we want to sit at your feet and hear from you. Uh, God, I pray that, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations, Lord, of our hearts today would be pleasing to you. God, help us to have ears to hear and receive, and even respond, God, in the ways that bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, what, I've worn this before, but what do you think about this outfit? Is it okay? Yeah. John already said he likes my shirt, so... Um, Uh, This is a little goofy. This is why pastors wear robes, you know, so so people aren't judging, you know, is he wearing a tie, is he not wearing a tie, is it in style, is it not in style? I had really close friends of mine in Michigan, they could get away with this because they love me and I love them, but um, some time ago they said, Rick, we're going to take you shopping, you need to stop dressing like an old man. (laughs) So, it's okay, I am an old man, so, um, so, but... uh, (laughs) So, I'm guessing that these skinny jeans are probably going to be out of style before they actually wear out. We'll see what happens, or I'll grow out of them. (laughs) Yeah. So, we are shaped more by our culture than the culture that we live in than most of us probably realize. And I'm not just talking about clothing styles or even consumerism. You remember what life was like before the World Wide Web, before cell phones and iPhones, and iPads. You remember what it was like before Facebook and Instagram and Twitter? If you want to stay current, do business, do ministry in this current culture, you have to use the resources and technology that are current. That's why I don't use PowerPoint. It's so passe. (laughs) I don't watch television, and I don't get a newspaper, but I do read more news than I ever have. I'm just getting it from a different venue, from a different source than I used to. Virtually anything that we want to know or learn about is at our fingertips today. It's incredible. I mean, virtually anything you want to know. Often, I think we are oblivious, and I'm going to say this, culturally, the way that we receive information has changed, and it is changing us. Often, we are oblivious to the things that are actually shaping the way that we think and believe and live. And as much as we say that the church shouldn't be uh, influenced by the culture, and usually by that people mean uh, the mores of the culture, the truth is that Christianity has always been impacted by culture. Whether, Whether simply going along with the flow or intentionally adapting to it or even resisting it, it still has its impact on us. You can't escape the influence or impact of culture. It's the context in which we live. Christianity and faith do not exist in a vacuum, nor is it locked in a particular point in time in history. But you can be aware and wise and discerning about how culture is shaping the way that you think and believe and live. That means not only the current culture, but also how have cultures in the past shaped who we are today? In our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course here at Zion, Just this past week, actually, the the chapter that we went through, the topic was going back to go forward. It's the idea that things happen in the past that have shaped who we are today. Well, doing that in the church, roughly 500 years ago, the world was in tremendous upheaval. Culture and society were in turmoil, not unlike today. Seismic shifts were underway in culture in religion and in politics, in fact, there are some surprising similarities between then and now. In fact, some sociologists and historians say that this happens about every 500 years, and we were due. But there's some surprising, amazing similarities between 500 years ago and today. And I'm, I'm thinking, in particular, I just mentioned a moment ago how much information and uh, um, uh, how much information has changed, and the way that that is conveyed in our time. 500 years ago, it was the invention of the printing press and movable type, and with that, an explosion of information and ideas shared with little or no vetting. Sounds like the internet, doesn't it? Facebook. Well, the Protestant Reformation, I suspect, would never have happened if it hadn't been for that new technology, that new way of conveying information and ideas with the printing press. The Reformation changed the world and it paved the way for an intellectual movement that profoundly impacted Western culture and Western Christianity. It was called the Enlightenment. You might also know it by the name of the Age of Reason. It developed in the early to mid-17th century, primarily in France and Germany and Great Britain. There are, um, well, let me say this, it, 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 uh, philosophy, religion, science, and politics were forever changed. At least three major political revolutions were birthed from the Enlightenment. The American experiment is a product of the Enlightenment. The ideas of government by consent of the governed, social contract, freedom, and equality are products of the Enlightenment. Good things. Our founding fathers were inspired by its ideals, and, one of the, and, and the one who was most imbued with this spirit of the Enlightenment was Thomas Jefferson. John Locke was a tremendously important political philosopher during the Enlightenment, and many of his principles are evident in documents like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Locke emphasized the natural freedom of human beings, the equality of all before God, and government by consent of the governed. Great ideas, right? Right? It's the American experiment. I would be remiss if I didn't also point out to you that Locke wasn't all that enlightened. He meant the ideals of freedom and equality only for white Protestant European males. Not Catholics, not Muslims, and certainly not slaves. And tragically, the original sins of our nation, the genocide of American Indians and the enslavement of Africans and the unjust policies that have followed through the years, find their roots in the Enlightenment. But this was the intellectual and cultural movement that profoundly impacted Western culture. It also impacted Christianity. Religion was an often-discussed topic in the Enlightenment. And those discussions often centered on notions of anti-supernaturalism and biblical criticism. Skepticism and doubt marked the Enlightenment. This was the age of reason and the age of scientific discovery. It paved the way for atheism. And because of the emphasis on rationalism, knowledge that is based on experience and empirical evidence, in other words, being able to observe or test or prove or demonstrate physically, naturally, if you will, was the only way of measuring things. And it was the only thing that was considered real. There was a great deal of skepticism about the supernatural including the miracles that are mentioned in the Bible. The parting of the Red Sea, manna in the wilderness, the appearance of angels, Jesus turning water into wine, walking on the water, stilling storms, healing the sick, raising the dead. The virgin birth of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Jesus were explained away as myths. These were thought to be relics of past superstition, and this paved the way for atheism. If God is is a supernatural being, then it was possible that belief in him was simply irrational tradition. You can probably see where I'm going with this. The effect that the Enlightenment had on Western Christianity is that we have little or no expectation of miracles, the supernatural or the mystical. We're believers but in many ways, functional atheists. We have allowed the influence of the Enlightenment, the age of reason, to emasculate Christianity. God's Word, to emasculate Christianity as well as God's Word, the sacraments, our prayers, our kingdom endeavors, which we do now mostly in our own power, not God's. And it's why they aren't all that amazing we attempt safe things for God, if we attempt anything at all. Some of the most biblically grounded and conservative Christians I know are extremely uncomfortable with the supernatural or the mystical. To some, it smacks of superstition, or that's Catholic. Talk about experiencing God in a mystical or supernatural ways, and some Christians will look at you cross-eyed; they get uncomfortable the Pulse survey that we took some months ago here at Zion revealed that most of us here at Zion aren't reading the Bible regularly. I don't know the reasons for that, I have some ideas but if you actually believe that this book was inspired of God, that it's God-breathed that it is a living word, that the Holy Spirit gave the words and the ideas and the thoughts to to the men who wrote this scripture, if you actually believe that and that God still speaks through it that this book has power wouldn't you be in it? I mean, if you believed, if you believed that th- that there's power here from God working through this book to convict or to comfort, to inform, to transform, to reform, wouldn't you be in it, anticipating, expecting God to do something in you through this? It just seems that that would be the case. I just wonder how much. Like, what miracles and transformations in our own lives are we missing simply because we aren't reading it? Or we are reading it, but merely for information, and we just get biblically smarter, but not wiser, and not more loving, which would require something supernatural or mystical or spiritual to happen here, to turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, so that we could love God and love neighbors ourselves, love ourselves as God loves us, love our enemies to be able to forgive, to be able to love in ways that people say, how are you able to do that? I don't know. (laughs) And how has the enlightenment shaped our view of the sacraments? I won't spend much time with this. I really want to as a pastor. I don't have time this morning. But even the sacraments, and I'm speaking to us as Protestants and evangelicals, We have emasculated the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We've castrated them. We've made them powerless. We've turned them into symbols. Read your Bibles. There's power in these sacraments. God comes to us through them in baptism, the washing away of sins and and, and uniting us with Christ with his own death and resurrection and saving us. Yes, the Bible says that, that baptism saves well, like, no, you're, you mean it symbolizes all of the things? I mean, it's an outward, it's an outward sign of an inward change, right? It just symbolizes. No, it actually affects those things. But we just make it a symbol. Same with the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, "This is my body. This is my blood." The Apostle Paul says, "As often as we break the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes." It says that the, the, that. Uh, Paul says, Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Is not the blood or the cup with which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? The word is koinonia. It means that there's a oneness, there's something mystical happening there. Christ is truly present. We say that in our church, in our theology, that Jesus is really present. It's more than a symbol. If you want to just hang on to it, that it's only a symbol, fine, enjoy your snack sorry I want to commune with Jesus I want to be reminded of the miracle that God can if God can come to me in bread and in wine he can come to me in anything and anyone and that's a miracle when you think about scripture do you believe that those miracles when you think about the miracles of Jesus do you believe that they really happened I suspect that you do I do Or are they just fairy tales, ancient man's explanation of what they didn't understand or myths that were invented? How do those supposed miracles inform our faith and our practice today? I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Scripture, Acts chapter 3. This is our Scripture for today, Acts 3, 1 through 10. This is sometime shortly after Pentecost. Jesus has already ascended into heaven if you believe that. And then Pentecost came. Acts chapter 3, I think it's page 1057 in your pew Bible. Reading the first 10 verses of chapter 3. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. And so the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. I mean, you know the stories of Jesus, but here are Jesus' followers, and they're doing the same things that Jesus did. Crazy, right? But that was then. This is now. Those things don't happen anymore. I mean, could you imagine passing somebody on the sidewalk, a beggar or whatever, and who's broken, whose life is broken, and, and you just speak a word, and this person's healed or set free? Could you imagine doing that? Could you imagine? I mean, the disciples, there are stories of the disciples even raising the dead. There have been times I've been in a funeral, sitting there in Lynn's funeral home, looking at the casket and saying, should I be raising this person from the dead? Why do we not ever try? I know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy. You know why? Because we're Western Christians. We wouldn't even bother. We wouldn't even think to try. We'd be afraid of what wouldn't happen. So, do you ever wonder about the miracles that you read about in the Bible? Why aren't they happening anymore? Or happening with the same regularity? Some have, diffi- some have actually attempted to reason or explain away why they aren't happening by saying that they were only for a time or only during the apostolic era, if you will, the early church. And uh, is that true? Or is that just what we've been told? Again, has Christianity been... Christianity has been emasculated. Has it been, it's, it's been rendered weak and feeble and ineffective by human reason, by enlightened thinking. What did Jesus mean? Listen, what did Jesus mean when he said to his fathers, you will do even greater things than I've done? What did Jesus mean when he said, whatever you ask for in my name, believing you will receive it? What did he mean when he said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you? What did Paul mean when he said the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is available to us who believe? What did Paul mean when he said God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine? What did James mean when he said the the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the prayer of a righteous man, of a believer, is powerful and effective? I'm afraid that we who are immersed in Western culture and infused with Western Christianity have been sold a bill of goods. We've largely adopted a weak and powerless version of Christianity. And it's no wonder that we see so few miracles and so little effectiveness of the gospel. We don't have much expectation or anticipation that anything substantive, supernatural, or mystical is going to happen. I'm trusting, and this ought to make you think, that you know enough about what's going on in other parts of the world, in the southern hemisphere, in the east, where Christianity is exploding, where tens of thousands of people are coming to faith every day, and where miracles are happening, amazing miracles, dreams and visions, and angels appearing, and people being healed, and people being raised from the dead. This stuff's happening in other parts of the world, where people are hungry, and where people are even Can I say it? Superstitious. Who have an expectation that there is something spiritual going on around us all the time. Who believe that this is not just a physical world, but also a spiritual world. They have that expectation. They have those beliefs. They're already ingrained in them. No wonder they're seeing things happening. They have an expectation that something's going to happen. Western Christianity is a product of the, is, is as a product of the age of reason has mostly been reduced to faith that is defined by systematic theologies, empty rituals, traditions, religious duty, and moralism. We've turned our faith into something that is reasoned or that we think we can argue people into the faith if we just have a logical enough argument or, or, have, or make the right points that we can argue people into the faith. We wonder why Christianity is in decline in the West, in Europe, and in America. The Enlightenment has paved the way for atheism, functional atheism. If Christianity isn't working these days, if church isn't working these days, the problem may be that we have no expectation that it can work. We've removed the power. And sadly, we look for it in other places. And if we really believe that there was power available to us, we would be spending a whole lot more time on our knees, which is the only position of a Christian that makes the devil tremble, if you believe in a devil. <sighs> I'm a product of the Enlightenment and of Western Christianity, and I hate it. I know that it's a lie, but it, it makes me skeptical. And yet, and yet, and yet, God has... God has done miracles in my life, including one of healing. I I get regular God winks, affirmations. I see God at work all the time. But there are other times when I find myself skeptical, doubting, well, maybe that wasn't God. Maybe that was something else. My prayers, I hope from here on out they change. They've already been changing this week, working on this. We should be praying bold, audacious prayers. Praying boldly, praying persistently until it is absolutely clear that God is has something else in mind. Or we have to simply sit back and wait. But pray bold prayers, expecting God to, to intervene, to act, to heal, whatever it is. Let me share with a story with you as we close. I thought of this story because a week ago Saturday I was supposed to be in Ann Arbor for Michigan game, and I didn't didn't go because the weather was so lousy and just thought it was going to be a not a good not a good weekend. But it reminded me of this story. Early in my ministry, uh, there was a couple who came to me to be married, and um, I knew the gal. She had been a senior when I was teaching high school. Uh, um, my first year of teaching high school, she was a senior, and her parents were members of my church, the Church Plant. And she had uh, moved out to Las Vegas and was planning to get married. And so I said, Well, tell you what, she asked me to to do the marriage. I said, The next time you guys are in town, we'll sit down and talk. And so they came back into Michigan about, I think it was Thanksgiving, probably that weekend. And uh, I met her fiance for the first time. And and I knew Lisa is her name. I knew that Lisa was a believer, I knew knew her family, I, I knew her story. But I didn't know her husband or her fiance, Brian, and I discovered in our conversation that he was, that he was Muslim. And I said, I'm not comfortable marrying you guys. You're, not, you're unequally yoked. You're not going to have the same foundation for your, for your lives. And so spiritually, I just said, I, I can't do it, which put Lisa in tears, you know? And I'm feeling bad, bad pastor. And, and I'm, so I'm like thinking, okay, they're already here. And so sheepishly, I said to Brian, are you open to hearing the gospel? And he said, yeah. And so I start sharing the gospel with him. And next thing I know, he's in tears. And I'm like, what's going on? And he's like, he's like, he's like I, I, I don't know how God could ever forgive me. I don't know how God could ever love me. Uh, you know the things that I've done, and so I'm sharing Christ with him, forgiveness, and what, all the, what that's all about. Next thing I know, Brian's praying to receive Christ, and I'm like thinking, is this for real, or is it just you want to get married? The next day, the next day, Lisa's mother came up to me in church that next morning, and she goes, "I don't know what happened between you and Brian yesterday, but he's not the same man today." And you know, long story short, they got married. They they both active in their church, Brian is a leader in his church, and the reason I thought of this story is because the last time I was at a Michigan game, somehow Brian found out that I was in that stadium with 115,000 other people, and he tracked me down with his friends, and he introduced me to his friends, and he said, this is the man who led me to Christ. When I think back at how sheepish I was to share the gospel, what did Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. How many of us hold back from sharing what we have because we don't think it's really going to make a difference? This story that has changed our lives has power. I'll say supernatural power, mystical power, real power from on high to turn a life around. Oh, that we would just oh, that we would just uh, have a little more superstition in the good sense of the word, and believe that there's always more going on than meets the eye, praying bold prayers, waiting, trusting God to be at work, in fact, praying and working and trusting God in ways that whatever God does around us, people actually say. How is that possible? Where do you need God to be at work in your life? What miracle, what power do you need to see in your life? When you look at the challenges of our community, of our nation, and of our world, where do we need God to intervene? This sounds crazy, I was thinking, I have to, Becky's sitting here, I want to say this is about creation care. I was laying in bed thinking about this message last night, and and I applaud the creation care and their good work, and and that we all need to be taking care of our world, but I'm like thinking, why don't we just ask God to turn the thermostat back two and a half degrees? (laughs) He can do it! (laughs) And at the same time, we should be wise, so. Let's pray. Sorry, that's crazy. Is that crazy? This is the, listen, if you believe that God is big and powerful and can do anything, then crazy ideas will come. And I don't know, you know, if God will do that or not, but why not? If the planet's in jeopardy, turning the thermostat back two and a half degrees, that sounds like a no brainer to me. Pray about it. Stop using your fossil fuels. Let's pray. Lord, nothing is impossible for you. All wisdom, power, and love are yours. Lord, forgive our doubts. The miracle that we ask today, God, is that you restore our sight. Give us eyes to see you living and moving among us, and kindle in us a faith that moves mountains. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.